0: And welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series podcast brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Wesley Mayer from Baylor College of Medicine talking about benign and malignant diseases of the adrenal gland. Uh, my name is Shriya I'm one of the PGY4 residents at uh, Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. Um, I hope you guys are all staying safe and staying well. Uh, I'm gonna introduce uh, Dr. Mayer, who is one of the associate professors here. Um, His specialty uh, is in minimally invasive invasive lap, and robotic cases, particularly the upper tract, kidney, ureter, and adrenal, which he'll be talking to us about today. He's also our program director and vice chair of education. He's a passionate champion resident education so we're very excited to share him with you all just a few logistics for today he'll have um, a couple questions that are multiple choice that will be shared through the poll which you're all familiar with Um, if you participated in past sessions we're also going to try some open-ended questions that will ask you to use the raise your hand feature and let you um, speak up and show yourselves
1: great Thank you, Shreya, and thank you, everybody. Um, and uh, I just want to say what an amazing program this is that's running out of UCSF um, and Dr. Hampson uh, and the whole planning committee. It's really innovative in the educational space um, you know, nationally, and I'm just incredibly grateful to be a part of it. And I'm sure that something like this has has a role moving forward even after we get through all this. And, um, and again, uh, thank you for all those who are on the front lines and, and being redeployed? Um, you know, certainly uh, our thoughts are with you, and I, I know you. I know you guys will do great. Um, I also want to send a special thanks to Dr. Kern, who put together some um, questions about the lecture, and I'm really appreciative for that. And of course, uh, Michelle Lifto and uh, Kirstie Cruz, who've just been unbelievable and made this complex process go really well. So. Um, I'm going to talk today about all of adrenal in uh, 45 to 50 minutes, so I certainly have my work cut out for me. Um, These are my uh, medical disclosures. This is my physical appearance disclosure. Um, You know, I haven't had a haircut in two months, I'm sure, like most of you, so please forgive any fluff. Um, so, learning objectives, I believe, is um, for you, for what I, I feel I want you guys and girls to be able to do at the end of this lecture. So, um, what, what I'd like is I'd like to really have a mastery of adrenal anatomy, histology, and function. Um, I'd also like us to be able to talk about the pathophysiology, be able to identify all the radiographic characteristics of the various adrenal masses, and then feel re- really confident about evaluating them hormonally. And then also um, in terms of their medical and surgical treatment but ultimately i want you all to crush your adrenal questions on your in-service um a couple more uh points here um we're going to be going fast it's a lot to cover um adrenal in an hour um and uh, in order to make it more interesting i am going to be asking for it to be interactive um so please uh, when we ask for you to raise your hand or, or submit an answer please do it i think it'll make it much more interesting and fun Um, So, uh, spoiler alert, this is all very highly testable material, and I think you all know that. Um, I'll try to highlight some of the more common things that I've seen on the SESP or in service in red as I go forward on the slideshow, but let's launch into it. Um, So, embryology, uh, the adrenal cortex develops from the mesoderm in the fifth week of gestation. This is a gross anatomy section with the you can see that the vena cava is cut away here, so this is the right side of adrenal gland. Um, but I want to, for embryology, I really just want to focus on the more testable things. So our first poll question, if we can, Kirsty. Um, the... So this is uh, the adrenal medulla, um, and it develops from what? We said the, med- the adrenal cortex developed from the mesoderm, but what does the ad- adrenal medulla develop
0: from during the septum? A couple seconds to answer that. Let's see what we have. Very good. See, we have adrenal
1: masters. I'm really excited now. We have the second poll question. Dive a little deeper here. We want to pull up that second poll question. Thank you. So, in renal agenesis, Um, or malrotation or malascent. What happens to the adrenal gland? Um, That should say renal, sorry about that. And the full question. Does it, it, is it absent if the kidney is absent on that side? Um, Does it? you find it somewhere along the path of the gonadal vessels? Um, Is it somewhere else in the body or proceed normally? All right, oh yeah, even better. Okay, well that's great. Um, These are really highly testable things that turn up on a lot of SASP. Here are some other things I've seen turn up in the past where they try to trip you up. Um, you'll have a male congenital adrenal hyperplasia infant that has a testicular mass, and it's an infant, and you're concerned that it's some kind of unusual tumor, and you, one of the answers is going to say orchiectomy, but one of the things you have to remember is these patients can have adrenal rest within the testes. Um, another one will be a neonate who has an abdominal mass, and you'll order some imaging, and the imaging might look something like this where you have a suprarenal mass. This is an MRI, it's T2, this is bright on T2. So um, actually this is just an adrenal hemorrhage um, and the neonatal adrenals are susceptible to that. So, um, and this is just observed conservatively. So these are just things that you may see embryologically that could trip you up. All right, I'm looking forward to trying this raise your hand feature here. So um, I would like someone nationally to fill in the blank here if you can. Um, someone tell me what the main arterial supply is for the adrenal gland. I can't wait to hear someone's voice giving this open-ended history. Anyone?
0: Let me hit. Let me. Yes. Roshan. We unmute Roshan. This
1: brave individual. Yeah,
0: uh, inferior phrenic.
1: I'm sorry, I think you said inferior phrenic?
0: Yeah.
1: That's great. Perfect. That worked great. Thank you. Um, Thanks for doing that, Rochon, and breaking the ice. Um, There are other branches that come from the aorta and the renal artery. Those are the three blood supplies. And you can see some uh, accessory suppliers from, especially the gonadal and other areas. The venous drainage is different on the right versus the left. Um, on the right, it goes directly into the vena cava. It's sort of posterior lateral. It's very short and fragile. I did my residency at Penn, and we used to call this the, the vein of death. Um, it's one of those things where if you're not careful, you can a good day can turn into a bad day really quickly. Um, the left adrenal vein drains into the renal vein directly. Um, and there's something I want to point out. This is from Campbell's. And, and you'll notice that on this image, the adrenal vein plugs right into the adrenal gland. Well, that's actually not reality. Um, In reality, the adrenal vein courses along the medial aspect of the adrenal gland on the left side. And so I'm I'm always telling residents that if you continue to chase the adrenal um, vein out that way, that'll always establish your medial border. It doesn't just plug right into the substance of the adrenal gland, it sends out lots of perforators. I also like this image because it's really good anatomically to get yourself oriented. You have the splenic artery here, and it is very close to the adrenal gland, so you really should expect to see this when you're doing your adrenalectomies. We do a lot of kidney donors um, here at Baylor, and you may have heard uh, Rick Link refer to that last week. Um, you want to, when you're doing left-sided donor, get as proximal as possible on the renal vein. And I like this image because it just kind of reminds us, you know, the me and the residents, that the SMA is closer than you think. Um, So let's try this. Uh, Get ready for your raise your hand features. I would love to do the layers of the adrenal gland histologically as we move deeper um, through the adrenal gland. So I'll give you the ones the capsule, that's usually a little difficult, but um, let's try to do the next one. Who can get number two? Who wants to raise their hand for this next layer as we go through the adrenal gland? Roshan is already a brave individual. Anyone else want to give it a try? Or anyone want to type into the chat? <laughs> I can keep going if uh, we don't have any brave souls. Um, so, uh, oh, I think I see. There's some things in the chat. I can see the chat. Yes. Yes. glomerulosa, You nailed it. Oh, yeah. Now I got to. Thank you, everyone. But but what does the glomerulosa produce? You can fire that away. <laughs> Um, Yeah, I guess surrogately, uh, yes, mineral corticoids and aldosterone, thank you. Um, What's next? What's the next layer? Yes, and what does it produce? I see we're alluding to... uh, Oh, I hear someone. Who's that? Sam. Say it again, Sam. I think I heard cortisol. I think
0: yeah, I yeah zona Yeah, glomerul- uh, zona reticularis and it produces corticosteroids.
1: Great. Uh, uh, fasciculata produces the um, cortisol and the reticularis produces the sex steroids. I saw someone alluding to this, the deeper you go, the sweeter it gets, or um, the salty, to the sweet. These are all great ways to remember it and GFR is a way to remember it as well. Um, and then, what is number five? Does anyone know number five? Yes, the medulla. So, the medulla is the chromaffin cells, and and they in uh, the medulla produces epinephrine. We'll touch on that again a little later. So, thanks for participating, everyone. So, um, let me go back to this multiple monitors here. Okay. So aldosterone, it's the primary mineral uh, corticoid in the human. It acts in the late distal tubule and collecting duct. And the main thing that it does is it reabsorbs sodium and chloride while secreting acid and potassium. So sometimes they'll trick you up on the test by saying things like, um, does your overall concentration of sodium increase? And it does not because water passively absorbs in that process. And so actually what happens is your total volume is increasing, not the concentration of sodium. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on this. This is really dense. It's really more renal physiology, but these are things that can increase or decrease when in production, um, and then ultimately uh, angiotensin and things like that. It's super high yield. Please come back to this slide when you're ready to study. These are some Campbell's pictures, and don't forget things like your juxtaglomerular apparatus and, and its sensing of renal perfusion and these sort of things. But for aldosterone for the boards, know that it's primary, primarily regulated by angiotensin-2. Um, it's also regulated by high serum potassium and low sodium levels. Um, and ACTH is a less important stimulate, uh, stimulation for aldosterone. It is very important for the other hormones of the adrenal gland, but not so much aldosterone. And then AMP is the main inhibitory factor. Now I find it very difficult to remember these things just for wrought memory. I just think everything with endocrine is homeostasis. So if, if, I, have, if I have a hormone that wants to secrete potassium and get rid of potassium then how is it stimulated well it's stimulated by a high serum potassium because you got to get rid of it and that's how i remember that amp amp is a natriuretic peptide it gets rid of sodium it's the opposite of aldosterone so these are just ways you can remember as you're reasoning through it on your boards so the primary glucocorticoid is cortisol it is tightly controlled by acth and it's on a diurnal variation This is another one of those charts that's super high yield for you to go back to at a later time. Um, But some of the things that we all know that cortisol does, um, things like uh, protein catabolism, it has anti-inflammatory activity, but when you have too much of it, things go awry, and we'll touch on that in a bit. So the sex sex steroids, the main ones being DHEA and DHEAS and androstenedione, these again are under control by ACTH. Um, Congenital adrenal hyperplasia pretty much results from problems in in these hormonal productions. And you can, a lot of pharma uh, companies use these cascades as targets to cut off adrenal androgens for advanced prostate cancers. This is kind of where their research comes from. And I am sorry, but you need to be familiar with it. I, I know that it's incredibly daunting and scary, The best thing that I can say is that when I look at this chart, I just try to zoom in on the things that matter. And those are the three major syndromes that you'll see pop up on your in-service, and then some of the byproducts of why they matter. So the the most common being um, 21-hydroxylase, you get this buildup of 17-hydroxyprogesterone, I think most uh, know that. Maybe less commonly known as the 11-beta-hydroxylase, When that's not functioning, you get a backup of DOC. DOC is a mineral corticoid, so those patients present hypertensive. And when you have 3-beta, 3-beta kind of helps the conversion along this cascade to cortisol. Otherwise, you get backup of this pregnenolone and some of the feminizing hormones. So 3-beta has a feminizing presentation. So that's how you can just kind of chunk it in your mind as as you work through it. Um, so the adrenal medulla, the adrenal medulla comprises only 10% of the total, core, um, the total adrenal mass, and it essentially is an extension of the autonomic nervous system. Um, it secretes mainly epinephrine, but it does secrete epinephrine as well as dopamine. Just remember that catecholamines are produced by, from tyrosine, sometimes that I've seen show up on some SASP, and this PNMT, I wouldn't suffer anyone to know that that's phenylethanolamine N-methyltransferase. Um, but uh, this hormone, it converts nor-epi to epi, and why that matters is it's only found in certain structures as listed below there, um, and specifically in the medulla. And so if you ha- when you're doing your hormonal testing, if you have products from epinephrine, in other words, metanephrine rather than normetanephrine, and that's disproportionately elevated, that tells you a little bit about where this may be localizing. Some other hormones that are scary to hear are the COMT. Um, that's the methylating, hormone. I'm sorry, I say hormone, I mean enzymes. Um, that methylates epinephrine and norepinephrine to the, to the metanephrine and normetanephrine that you'll see in your um, plasma-free metanephrine assays. And MAO is actually the enzyme that converts to VNA. So these are just things that turn up every once and again. Okay, everybody breathe. Um, we've gotten through the physiology. That's sort of the densest part. And now let's get to the more clinically interesting parts and we'll start with cushing syndrome so cushing syndrome by definition is excess circulating glucocorticoids um and uh there are many different causes for cushing syndrome you can either have cushing syndrome because of cushing's disease which is pituitary secretion you can have it from an adrenal source, either adenoma or adrenal cortical or even hyperplasia. And of course, you can have it from ectopic ACTH production outside of the pituitary or um, CRH. Um, so, what I conceptually think about the causes of Cushing's in three different categories either exogenous, ACH dependent, or ACH independent. Um, so, those are the main categories. Does someone want to endeavor to let me know what the, I see? Some chats here. What's the most uh, common um, cause here? Anyone want to try to nail that? Yes, thank you. Um, it is exogenous. That's the most common cause for um, Cushing's. Uh, there we go. Okay. So this is your classic picture for Cushing's. This is out of Campbell's. Um, you got the trunkal obesity. You got the buffalo hump, striae, um, skin thinning, uh, muscle wasting. This is all the classic Cushing syndrome stuff. But some of the things you don't realize are, are in there too, and that's kidney stones. It's important for my practice. Um, so, actually, fifty percent of patients with Cushing's can have kidney stones. It probably has to do with the bone mineral metabolism issues that arise. Okay, let's try to work through this. So, you have Cushing's. We already said exogenous is the most common cause. But if you have an endogenous cause of Cushing's, ACTH dependent is by far the most common. So 80% of endogenous Cushing's is ACTH dependent. The most common cause of that is Cushing's disease. So that would be an ACTH producing pituitary tumor. Um, the other 20% comes from ectopic secretion, and this is almost always malignant. Um, and sometimes metastatic malignancies, along lung being very common. If you have an ACTH independent cause of your Cushing's, then that's generally gonna come from the adrenal. Not 100%, but it, it, it will generally come from the adrenal gland. Um, and so that's listed here. <clears throat> Subclinical Cushing's you'll hear This is exactly what it sounds like. There's no clinical manifestations, but instead what you have is laboratory findings suggestive of hypercortisolism. And these are the various conditions where you'll find that in. I've seen alcohol dependence and depression. I've seen it as a multiple choice uh, question, um, which one is not kind of thing. We can pull the next polling question um, for for the next slide here. Um, Which of the following is not a recommended test to establish the diagnosis for Cushing syndrome. Let's see what people come up with. Let's see what we have. Okay, Um, so that's interesting. So uh, a little little less certainty. Believe it or not, um, you're all kind of right, uh, but it is an acceptable one, believe it or not. Um, Midnight plasma cortisol level has been gaining in momentum, as you'll see in the upcoming slide. The one that's no good and the one that trips everybody out is the morning cortisol level. In isolation, the morning cortisol level is not not a recommended test. So let's go through that a little bit. So thanks for that. Um, There are really three main recommended evaluations, and then this uh, midnight plasma level has been gaining some momentum in the Endocrine Society guidelines and European guidelines and some papers. But the the one thing that you won't see on this list is just an isolated morning cortisol. It would have to be in in combination with a low-dose dexamethasone test. If you're like me, you hear something like that and you think uh, you get nervous, it takes you back to med school, you don't understand this stuff. But believe it or not, a low-dose dexamethasone test is so easy to do. You just give the patient a prescription for one milligram, one tab of dexamethasone. And you tell them take this at 11 p.m go to bed and come here first thing in the morning at 8 a.m and we'll draw all your adrenal labs and it's just the easiest way to do it and it it sounds intimidating but it's really not Um, the other option that i would say is commonly done is a 24-hour free urine cortisol and that that would be another acceptable answer and you can do the salivary cortisol as um, uh, some people were recognizing as well so let's pull up another uh, poll question if we can what is the ideal way to determine whether a patient has ACTH-dependent or ACTH-independent hypercortisolism, in other words, Cushing's. ACTH-dependent versus independent. How would you figure that out? Let's see what we got. Um, okay, so uh, let's talk about that for a second. Um, I mean, do I close, that? I, think I close that? Okay. So actually, um, this is the answer, uh, and it has to. And, and the reason for that, we'll come to it in a second. But when you're trying to think is something ACTH dependent or independent? What are you really asking? If my cortisol is high, why is it high? Is the ACTH constituently high? Well, again, it's all about homeostasis. If my cortisol is high. My ACTH should shut off. You know. So if my ACTH is high then really that's driving the process. So that makes it um, a dependent process. So the ACTH being high in the late afternoon ACTH level, and that would tell you that it's dependent. If it's low, then it tells you it's independent. And remember, if it's independent, then you start looking at the adrenal. Um, That's when you plug in your abdominal uh, imaging. Let's say you do that and you don't see anything in the adrenal. That's when you need to start thinking, is this person taking exogenous cortisol? in some way, or are they, um, do they just have hyperplasia somehow? What about um, the dexamethasone test? So this is where the texam, dexamethasone test plugs in. When you want to know if it's a dependent cause, so the ACTH is high, why is it high? So a high dose dexamethasone test, theoretically, uh, certainly that's what I learned in residency and in mid school, Theoretically, a pituitary source will be suppressed when you give a high enough dexamethasone dose, whereas an exogenous source won't be. And so that'll tell you the difference between is it Cushing's disease, a pituitary source, or an exogenous source. Well, it turns out that that may not be as reliable as we thought. So really what's recommended in modern times would be an ACTH direct sampling via inferior protrusal um, uh, sinus sampling, and, uh, or you can do an MRI of the brain. So I'm glad we uh, picked up on some of those things. Um, Cushing's disease, how do you treat it? Well, if it's a pituitary problem, you have to have a surgical intervention for that. Many patients relapse. If you do relapse sometimes, ultimately it comes to needing to have the adrenals out despite it being a pituitary source. If it just, you can't overcome it um, by controlling the pituitary source. If it's an ectopic ACTH producing tumor, resect the tumor. Remember, if you resect um, both adrenal glands and your pituitary is in place or even there's a, a little bit of it left, you run the risk of this Nelson syndrome, which you'll see pop up at times. This is pituitary adenomas that grow and you get hyperpigmentation. That's kind of the pathognomonic finding. And, of course, if you have a cortisol secreting adrenal mass, then you simply want to remove the adrenal gland. Uh, you can uh, perform some medical treatment, although that's uncommon. Let's move on to Kahn syndrome. So uh, Jerome Kahn figured this out when he had a patient who had hypertension, uh, mineral corticoid activity, and an adrenal tumor. But how common is that? Well, it's only about 10% of hypertensive series, so it's not vanishingly uncommon. But I think what's important to note is this next point, and that's that actually the predominant cause is hyperplasia, not and adenoma not a tumor and and we'll come back to that idea when it comes to management classic features hypertension tends to be severe tend to be on multiple medications um, and then hypokalemia I've had many people say oh you know why do you have to screen this person they obviously don't have cons so potassium is normal well it, it can be normal actually in fact in some series it can predominantly be normal so don't go based solely on your potassium. If you have a, a young patient on multiple blood pressure meds, you need to think about Conn syndrome, regardless of the potassium. This again, uh, a little chart for you to go back and, re- and, and reference. These are some of the reasons why you might want to screen a patient for Conn syndrome. But for our purposes today, I would say if you have an incidentaloma with hypertension. So an adrenal mass with hypertension that would be the main reason to do it. If you didn't have hypertension, you probably don't need to screen for cons. How do you screen for cons? You have to correct the hypokalemia before you do, and that's very important for the physiology of why that happens. You have to make sure the patient's not on spironolactone. You're not gonna get a very good screen if the patient's on a mineral corticoid antagonist. But there are several other things you need to stop. You need to watch out for beta blockers, for anything like an ACE inhibitor or an ARB, diuretics, so it is it is a little bit kind of um, daunting when you're, when you're first learning this space. But once you have in your mind the list of medications that people shouldn't be on, it becomes e- e- easy. I'll tell you what's not easy and what keeps me up at night is I'm telling this person who's on three blood pressure medications, hey, just, just stop these medications for a few days. We're going to get some blood work. I'm just a urologist. Don't worry. You'll be okay. Um, that gets me nervous. So I usually have some disclaimer in the medical record. And I talk to the patient about it. I make sure they talk to their primary care doctor before they do it, and they all have to have a blood pressure cuff, um, so they have to be taking their blood pressures a couple of times a day to make sure they're safe. But ultimately, once you've controlled for all of that, then really what you're doing is you're obtaining a morning aldosterone and plasma renin activity, and what you're looking for is the aldosterone renin ratio, um, and it should be high. I often will have uh, someone come up to me and say, "Oh, but the the aldosterone renin is super high, Wes. Uh, you know the." The renin was 0.1, and the aldo was 10. You know, the ratio is 100. This person has Kahn syndrome. But not really. I mean, we're talking about aldosteronism. So the baseline is that they have an elevated aldosterone. If they don't, then it could just be artifact. Um, and, in fact, the, the false positive rate can be as high as 30%. So make sure it passes the look test, and, the, and it makes sense that the patient, that their aldo is actually high. And if you do find, uh, if you do get a finding, then confirm it. A nice way to do that is with the oral sodium loading test, which, you know, I don't don't know that we need to necessarily go into the details of that, but um, you're looking for suppression. You load them up with sodium, and clearly your aldosterone should shut off. Now, this is a very important point, and that's that if you have a patient who's got hyperaldosteronism, you can't rely on your CT to make the judgment call of whether you should do surgery or not. Because if they have no adenomas, that doesn't mean that they won't localize to one adrenal or the other based on uh, unilateral hyperplasia. And if you have an adenoma, that doesn't mean that it's it's a functioning adenoma. It may be non-functioning and they may be overproducing from both adrenals. So in fact, don't make base your decision on your CT scan alone. Instead, establish lateralization with adrenal vein sampling. Now Campbell's will reference, a couple age groups where maybe it's not necessary. You have a younger patient who has a, you know, an adrenal mass and, and they fit the bill and maybe, and younger being less than 40, less than 35. But in general, you should be turning to adrenal vein sampling. If the adrenal vein sampling is inconclusive, these are some of the tests that pop up. We're getting in the weeds here a little bit. Um, postural simulation test. Again, um, th- these things are not things that you're probably gonna do in your practice, but what I do is a 24-hour urine aldosterone. I think it's super easy. Again, just looking for hyperaldosteronism. Um, these other things are a little bit harder to find probably in many centers. So if you do lateralize and you wanna do an adrenalectomy, but please counsel the patient. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've heard a patient uh, frustrated um, you know, from, from not being off their medications and just not understanding the fact that actually 50% of patients are still gonna need some kind of antihypertensive. And there are some predictors for that. Is the patient um, old? How many meds were they on? How long has it been going on? But you should just counsel the patient that this doesn't necessarily mean you're going to cure their hypertension, and they may still need to be on meds. In the post-op period, maintain your IV flow, your sodium fluids, and maintain a high-sodium diet. Remember, you just had a hormone on board that was Absorbing quite a bit of sodium and also absorbing total body volume, so you, you need to make sure you support that in the post-op period and watch out for hyperkalemia. If you don't if you don't think you can operate on the patient, then it's a very good option to just simply um, you know use spironolactone. And, and I've I've had many patients that I've maintained for seven eight years on that just because they're not operative candidates. This is how I picture myself when I enter the room for a theochromocytoma. I am very much relying on my team. I may have some abilities, but it is a team sport, and it can be very dangerous. And so let's uh, use this as a lead into pheochromocytoma. Um, this is a catecholamine-producing tumor. It can come from the medulla. It can come from extra adrenal sources. These are known as paragangliomas. I would love to hear from uh, uh, everyone nationally. Does anyone know? Um, have an idea what the most common site is? Excited to hear this one. Anyone? I thought I would never get to do the Bueller. Anyone? This is a perfect opportunity. Wow, we got We have an adrenal rock star here. Um, thank. I want to make sure I, uh, that's Deepanesh, right? That's rock And you know what, Jeremy? That's pretty solid, too, as you'll see. Um, Because actually, that's where you find it. It's basically right by the IMA, um, just above the bifurcation of the iliacs and the aorta. So really nice, good job, everyone. Um, What percent of patients with pheochromocytoma will present without hypertension? That's a poll question. Sorry for for that, uh, Kirstie. So what percent of patients will present without hypertension? We can probably uh, close that out. I think people had some time to think about it. let see what we got. Okay. Yeah, 10%. That, that is right. Um, I want to ask the chat, what percent of patients present with no symptoms, none whatsoever? Anyone want to take a stab at that in the chat? Completely asymptomatic, Theo? I want to throw a number into that chat. Not bad. I appreciate your bravery, David. 5%. Oh, boy, it's always third time's a charm. 20%, you got it. 20% of patients will have absolutely no symptoms whatsoever, which is a little bit scary. Um, this are the clinical manifestations, top three are the most common and what you'll see a lot. But, um, you know, don't forget hyperglycemia. Hyperglycemia is one that falls off people's radars in the post-operative period. Thanks for your participation, everyone. So when it comes to the biochemical workup, what we're looking at here, what, what I do, it's the easiest is plasma-free metanephrines. It's super sensitive. It's pretty specific. There's definitely some problems. Um, and again, getting into the weeds a little bit. Make sure your patient isn't on, taking a lot of caffeine, like my wife has seven cups of coffee every day. Um, That's not gonna be a good situation because it's gonna give you some false elevation. These are usually mild false elevations. Um, Tylenol will give you a false elevation. So you have someone with arthritis who's taking a lot of Tylenol, they gotta pause it. But plasma-free metanephrines is really good. Um, 24-hour metanephrines in the urine is is good. Um, If they ask you what's the most specific So plasma-free metanephrines is the most sensitive. If they ask you what's the most specific, then it's urine VNA. So that's, again, a 24-hour collection, which I tend to try not to have the patients do. I just think it's cumbersome. So imaging, you can either do CT. um, It will not look like an adenoma, um, and we'll go into what adenomas look like. And MRI, again, won't look like an adenoma, so it will not drop signal on uh, out-of-phase sequences. I'll explain what that means the classic, of course, that you read about is the light bulb sign. I like functional imaging. I like to confirm these things with an MIBG. MIBGs can be a little hard to get depending on your institution. They can be pricey, but they're really good and they make you feel really confident that that's the source when you see, you know, the adrenal light up with the MIBG. It's a nuclear medicine scan. And remember, with malignant Pheo, you actually can't make that diagnosis on Um, cytology, on the pathology. It's a clinical diagnosis uh, made by METS. So if, uh, so I do the MIBG almost as a staging. Like I want to know if there's any Pheo outside of the adrenal gland. Rule of tens, sort of 10% are bilateral, 10% are pediatric, um, but that's about where that rule probably ends in reality. There are many genetic causes and familial causes that we'll touch on and uh, extra adrenal, so paragangliomas can be, uh, you know, are not uncommon. Malignancy is actually quite rare, so it's, it's 5%, um, sometimes less, um, but look for it in extra adrenal disease. That's when you'll probably see it. So these highly testable stuff, um, men type two, Men type 2 is where you have your medullary thyroid cancer. Um, 2A is where you'll have your stone patients with a hyperparathyroid. 2B is your morphinoid syndrome, but they all have pheos. Okay, everyone, start firing out your clinical manifestations of, uh, oh, what did I do here, of, um, close that out, of von Hippel-Lindau. Let's see what you got. What can people do? Start firing them out. What do you see in Von hibbel syndrome? Solid. Good. Yes. Good. Oh, that's the one I was looking for. That's right. Uh, D-Panesh, that's awesome. That's the one that'll turn up sometimes. Um, But yes, you can get pancreatic cysts. All these are great. So I'm glad that you have all this at your fingertips super quickly. So nice job, everybody. Um, These are the ones that I listed. But the epididymal cyst adenomas are the ones that kind of sneak up on an in-service. They might give you a testicular exam, for example. and neurofibromatosis, and you can have genetic gangliomas. So what, what do you do to get the patient medically managed and ready for the OR? I'll tell you what, what I do and what's recommended is I consult cardiology. I get an echo in these patients. doesn't matter to me how young they are. I work with a team. Um, I have an anesthesiologist who does all these cases with me. Um, I have an endocrinologist who manages all these patients with me. Um, you may not have an anesthesiologist who has an interest um, as mine does in Theo's, and that's okay. I would just say to find your anesthesiologist who you feel like is the best at critical care or just takes great care of people and can handle intraoperative perturbments in physiology. And just say, you know what, you and me, we're gonna be an adrenal team, the two of us. And you just book all your cases with that person. And that's probably the best way to do it. Um, Alpha blockade, before beta blockade, remember that phenoxybenzamine is irreversible. So I personally don't use it. Um, I get a little nervous about that lingering around in the post-op period um, when you lose all your catecholamines. So, but, but that's what is on a lot of tests and what's in textbooks. Probably most important is to make sure that you're intravascularly replete. So I pre-admit all these people, and I put them on IV fluids, um, tank them up the night before. What I really like is metyrosine if you can find it. Um, that's sometimes the issue and cost. But metyrosine it, it decreases the synthesis of catecholamines. And so really, it kind of prepares the patient a little bit for what they can expect when you take that adrenal vein in the OR. So I find that to be hugely useful and takes a weight off my conscious when, when I can get them on the tyrosine. I feel a lot better when we go in the OR. My anesthesiologist loves calcium channel blockers, um, feels that it helps with some of the physiologic alterations in the operating room. Um, and sometimes we'll do that even you know over alpha blockade, but for your test, al- alpha blockade. We're not gonna go over this, but again, please go back uh, to the talk whenever you need it to see how to dose this stuff, like how to dose tyrosine and things like that. So what do you do with people after surgery? Um, You watch them overnight in the ICU. And for me, it doesn't matter how smooth the case goes. And, you know, Alex Rosas, who's my anesthesiologist, he always does the same thing. He always says, you know, everything's perfect. He did great. She did great. I'm still watching him in the ICU because I'm never sorry about that. But I'm definitely going to be sorry at one in the morning if the patient tanks. Um, so watch out for hypertension. Watch out for hypoglycemia, as I mentioned. And when they come back for your follow-up visit, remember to get um, a, uh, uh, your metabolic testing again to prove that you actually uh, fixed it. This is metast- uh, metastatic malignant, Theo. Just in case you get asked, it's going to be uncommon. Maybe the only thing you might get asked is, can you use radioactive MIBG, similar to, say, a thyroid, using radioactive iodine. Okay, uh, adrenal cortical carcinoma. I like this lead-in slide because it's a big, ugly tumor with an IVC thrombus, and it kind of centers all of us to remember what a bad tumor this tumor can be. It can be in kids or adults. Kids tend to present earlier. They tend to present earlier because they tend to be more biochemically active than adults, although the adults are quite biochemically active. But it's always important to take a step back and remember this is a rare tumor. So if you have a patient who has a previous malignancy, for example, and they have a new adrenal lesion, it's going to be way more common that that it's gonna be an adrenal metastasis than it's gonna be an ACC. Can anyone fill in the blank there? Oops, I did. Oh, well. That's okay. Did someone actually go for it? No, that's okay. I'll fill in the blank. It's 50%. So, 50%. So, if you have a patient who had breast cancer, who had kidney cancer, lung cancer, and they have a new adrenal mass, 50% of the time, that mass is a net. And that's really important to keep in mind as you evaluate a patient who's coming to your office with an adrenal mass. Um, Let's see. So, again, as I mentioned, they usually present with advanced disease. I talked about. How kids secrete more than adults. What I would like to drive home on this slide is that these are the virilizing tumors. So nothing else have I mentioned today that talked about that that deepest layer, the sex steroids, but, but you will get that in ACC. You'll see some virilization. And so your metabolic workup should be geared that way. So we've talked about all the things that you want to do when someone walks into your office with an adrenal mass. We'll touch on them again later. but. You want to rule out hypercortisolism, so I do a low-dose dexa. You want to rule out pheo, so do metanephrines. If they're hypertensive, you want to rule out cons, so you do an outer a ratio. But if you're concerned at all that they may be virilized or they may have an ugly tumor, then you're going to want to do the androgens. Um, what do they look like? They're big. Um, so. 90% of ACCs are greater than five centimeters, but that does not mean that 90% of adrenal mass is greater than five centimeters are ACCs. That's a really important point. ACCs look very distinctive. They're ugly, they're irregular, they have necrosis, they're invading into other structures, and that's all very, very important as you plan your surgical approach. Weiss criteria, um, that's what they uh, grade the um, histology on. And then this is the staging for ACCs. And uh, you can just see that most patients fall into the higher stage and and really the survival is dismal. So as I mentioned, um, actually the specificity, if you use these cutoffs that you'll see when you read, oh, take out all the tumors that are above four to six centimeters, the specificity for that's pretty low. So I'm always advocating, take a look at the tumor. Is this really well circumscribed? Is it invading versus pushing into other structures? And is it growing? These are the type of tumors that will grow fast. I mean, you can scan the person again in six weeks, and you'll get a centimeter in growth. So that will help you determine what this is. But if you're going to go in to resect it, make sure you talk to your general surgical colleagues, your vascular colleagues. If you are find yourself peeling that off the distal pank, you shouldn't do that. You should take it in block, get a staple across the distal pang. Um, So these are the cases where uh, you really need to be collaborative. Um, Advanced ACC, uh, probably most of us won't be in this space, but if, uh, I guess I would, um, if the largest burden is resectable, then maybe you would consider it. Short of that, it's mostly palliative. Does anyone know the answer to that blank there? Oh, I see a couple, I gotta get my cursor over there. Let's see, yes, mitotain. very nice. Mitotain actually does not um, improve survival, but it do- it is palliative. And don't forget, if the question asks, you have to give some steroid replacement with it. So I'm going to buzz through it in the last, you know, two three minutes. I have you know the 45 minutes just through surgery. Um, these are all the various surgical approaches. You can do it open. You can do it any of a number of ways, depending on your institution. At Penn, we did a lot of thoracobdominal and flank incisions here at Baylor, we do a lot of chevron incisions, um, whatever you're comfortable with, and then the lap and robotic approaches. Um, so these are some port setups in Campbell's, they're not actually what I use. This is a patient of mine who had a nine or 10 centimeter uh, Pheo, so that will definitely keep you up the night before. Um, and this was our robotics setup. this is on the SI system, so obviously big tumor, big extraction here. But, um, you know, using all your arms. Uh, I'm sorry, actually here, I guess I did. I used three arms on this one. I'm using four arms now on the uh, XI and then a liver retractor. Um, let's take a look at, this is not the nine centimeter, obviously. This is a five centimeter Cushing's patient. But I always tell my residents to just begin the procedure. The very first thing you tell yourself is you're a liver surgeon. Incise size the peritoneum underneath the liver and, and get up as high as you can. So you can start to see that yellow adrenal here. And if you just spend the first 10 minutes doing that, you're gonna get above the adrenal and you're gonna feel a lot more confident and have a lot more mobility. Work your way back medially to get to the vena cava and then um, my uh, mentor and fellowship Rick Link always told me that the V is the key. So um, this is the V that the renal vein makes with the the vena cava. And in here you'll find the adrenal vein, which you'll wanna develop. I advocate taking this with a sealant. you know, like a ligature, for example, if you're doing that Um, here, I don't know that I'd advocate this, but I took it with a wet clip just for um, illustrative purposes. Be careful. You can see how short it is and how delicate it is. is. But once you go ahead and and secure that, I think there's a little bit of an echo. Sorry about that. Once you secure that, you'll want to establish a plane in between the upper medial pole of the kidney and the adrenal um, mass. Now you'll have that free. You can lift up on the adrenal and the mass and just secure all the posterior lateral attachments and you'll you'll have the mass and you'll have this nice clean fossa um and so that's how i do you see my vessel sealer here um uh less adrenalectomy uh cer- certainly an option that's what i do on my left sided adrenals with single site that's because we have a as i mentioned a large volume of single site donors that we do here. And you essentially do an adrenal case when you do a donor. You have to get medial, you have to get the adrenal vein, and you have to dissect all along the adrenal to free it from the upper pole of the kidney. So we feel very comfortable with that. Um, and these are both uh, post-op day 12 or 14 uh, patients. So they look really good. Um, this guy had two X-laps, one for a perforated ulcer and one for a small bowel obstruction. But you can still do it with single site because you have a 5-centimeter mini lap incision. I mean, it's way safer to get in than throwing a you know, varus needle in or hassaning in or whatever it may be through a small little you know incision. So we still would do those um, single site. I'm not going to go through all these. We've actually talked about most of them, but these are the indications for adrenalectomy. And I just wanted to spend the last you know, two three minutes talking about bringing it all together. Patient walks into your office with the incidentaloma, the adrenal mass, and that's defined by being greater than a centimeter. And in modern series, that's that's as much as ten percent. You ten know, percent. Um, you'll see the prevalence on imaging. So, um, and, and not ten those patients are not all getting worked up. There's a lot of cases that could be missed. So I asked myself three simple questions. Is, is it Does it look like cancer? Did the patient have cancer in the past? And is it metabolically active? And that's it. And if you can answer those questions, you'll know what to do with the patient. And remember, just because it was incidentally found doesn't mean that it's insignificant. So just focus on this real quick. Um, of incidentalomas, are adenomas. Okay, adenomas. If you have an adenoma as diagnosed by imaging criteria, we talked about, um, you know, we'll talk about some of that, then 75% of them are non-functional adenomas. But that means that 25% of them produce hormones and they're gonna need to be addressed. And then you have your other percentages of of cancers um, and pheos that we talked about. So how do you distinguish these things radiographically? Non-contrast CT scan, less than 10 Hounsfeld units, you're done. It's an adenoma. If it's indeterminate because it's greater than 10 Hounsfeld units, then go to your CT adrenal protocol. That's the with and without contrast with a delayed phase and look for your washout and that should tell you. The other thing that can help is an MRI with chemical shift. You're looking at the in phase and out of phase. This is what I alluded to before. As you're clicking through your scan, it's the it's the phase where it kind of makes you feel like you have a seizure. It's from light dark light dark If you look at the adrenal it should drop signal If the drop signal then that that is uh, an adenoma um, I'd like to thank uh, Alex Kudikoff for this. this is from his AUA update I'm not going to go over it But I just want you all to have one succinct source of how you could march your way through the patient that goes into your office with an adrenal mass Um, So please take a look, it's pretty much everything that we talked about, and it talks about some follow-up if if it's a non-functional adenoma, which I personally do annually. Other stuff we didn't touch on just to mention, myelolipomas, macroscopic fat on CT within within the mass that's different than microscopic fat, which is what the MRI chemical shift is telling you, macroscopic fat is a myelolipoma, it's benign, you're done. Um, and, and Addison's disease, that's adrenal insufficiency and know how to manage it. So I'm sorry for going a little bit uh, over the 45 minutes. Uh, these are my references. They're all really good. Um, and I really want to thank Alex uh, Kutkoff, who is, you know, one of my mentors in the adrenal space. I would call him constantly when I was first starting about a decade ago. And uh, and I really appreciate his help and some of the things I so this is probably how you all feel right now. Um, and I just uh, wanna take a, a minute again to thank the whole UCSF crew um, and Dr. Hampson, Dr. Kern, um, and uh, Michelle and Kirsty. really appreciate the help. Thanks for letting me be a part of it. Thanks.
0: Thank you, Dr. Mayer. That was a lot of information, um, but very, very helpful. Uh, just a quick reminder to fill out the survey, the QR code is up on your screens now. Um, we have just a handful of questions so I'll jump right in. Um, Thank you everyone for the participation, that was really great. Um, So to start off with some diagnostic questions, um, there's a little bit of, uh, people wanted some clarification on uh, if your CT shows an enlarged unilateral adrenal gland and they have an elevated aldosterone to renin ratio, you would still do adrenal vein sampling? Correct.
1: There's a, the uncommon situation I was mentioning is if you have a young patient, less than 40, less than 35, you may get away with not having to do that if, um, you know, according to some sources. But you'll, in general, the answer is to do adrenal vein sampling. 25% of the time, it will not localize to your adenoma. Wow,
0: thank you. Another uh, diagnostic question, would you still evaluate a asymptomatic patient if the CT identifies um, the quality of the mass on the CT is consistent with an adenoma.
1: Yes, Um, and that's according to, and what's frustrating actually for all of us here in this virtual room, is that the AUA has no guidelines on adrenal. Um, Alex kind of took that foray when he wrote the AUA update several years ago, but we don't have any specialty source of of how to treat, um, someone who walks into your clinic with an adrenal mass. But the Endocrine Society does, and the Europeans do, and so do the Canadians, and all of them recommend um, that you perform a functional workup. Because as I mentioned, 25% of them, even though they're asymptomatic, um, they will be functional adenomas. Um, And we all know our patients, many are obese, many are diabetic, many are on a blood pressure medicine. They almost always have some indication where they might not be symptomatic with, say, a pheo, but they probably have some symptoms that warrant a metabolic workup.
0: Excellent. And then um, one more diagnostic question. Have you seen elevated testicular tumor markers with adrenocortical carcinoma?
1: Um, I have not. Uh, I'd have to read up on that. I can imagine how that is possible, but I, I have not.
0: Okay, interesting. I mean, it's not um, possible. possible. Um, and then just a couple questions on kind of surgical technique. Um, yeah during section of the pheo, um, would you ligate the adrenal vein first, the adrenal artery, and can you explain why?
1: Yeah, so the dogma is to do the vein first, and the reason for that is as you manipulate the adrenal gland, you're basically, think about it as squeezing catecholamines through the vein, and it can be very difficult for your anesthesiologist to get control of the situation. So the test answer is to have early ligation of the, uh, of the adrenal vein. Um, and I don't partially ligate it, uh, but I do have lots of communication with my anesthesiologist. Again, like I said, we've worked together for many years. So um, we make sure that they feel very volume replete, they got the magnesium on board, all the various things they're doing to stabilize the patient. And it's very clear when I say, okay, this adrenal vein is going to go now. Um, and then we all uh, get ready for that. Um, so no, but I don't do any kind of temporary clamping or any of those kind of things.
0: Okay, and then this is the, um, then one more surgical question. Can Mm -hmm. you review the pearls for dissecting the adrenal gland on the right side?
1: Yeah, so, um, I I can, uh, well, I don't know if it'll be useful to go back to those things. I know I clicked through them a little quickly, but I think the best thing you can do is get the liver really up out of the way. It'll give you a lot of mobility. And then, um, after you kind of, you have to take that upper corner uh, of the colon kind of in that, The ascending colon goes to the transverse, and and cockerize a little bit up in that upper corner, just so you can get on the anterior surface of the IVC. And once you have that, and you can just see the peak of your adrenal vein—I'm sorry, of your um, of your renal vein taking off from your IVC—you essentially identify that as a V on your screen. And then somewhere in that V is living the corner of the adrenal gland, and your and your adrenal vein. And so just very. Carefully and proddingly start, you know, your dissection in there carefully. Um, and and then you identify your adrenal vein. And like I said, I tend to try to take that with the ligature. Um, the ligature has a little lower profile than the robotic vessel sealer. Um, and uh, I, the assistant can run that really well. And after that, I, I do establish my plane between the upper medial pole, of the kidney, and the adrenal gland, and then take everything anterior um, just, and just pull it straight up and you can just walk right underneath it.
0: Excellent, and then this is our last question going back to um, the diagnostic workup again. How do you rule out exogenous steroid use as a cause for pushing?
1: Um, yeah, I guess um, for me, it'd probably be like uh, ruling it in. It's when it's not making a lot of sense. You know, the, um, so uh, an exogenous source, um, your, your ACTH, you know, so it looks like your, your ATCH is suppressed. Um, so here, actually, let me, uh, that's a, it's a good question. I want to go back to that slide because we, it gets complicated. I don't want my thing to, let's go back to that one slide real quick, everybody. I um, we go back to this workup question. So, um, the, So you have a patient, you're trying to decide if it's ACTH-dependent or independent. If the ACTH is high, then you know it's dependent on ACTH. But if the ACTH is low, then you start immediately looking for your adrenal source. But if your adrenal source is not there, there's only one, two things it can be. It's either that you have hyperplasia, which you should be able to see on cross-sectional imaging, or the patient's taking exogenous glucocorticoids. So I'm not sure if that makes sense.
0: I think so, diagnosis of exclusion, essentially. Um, And then we just had one more question pop up. Um, If you uh, incidentally find ectopic adrenal tissue in a surgical specimen, let's say for a hernia, do you need to follow that up in any way?
1: Uh, No, I think... um It's a good question. I'm thinking, it's funny, everyone who walks to my clinic has cross-sectional imaging. So the first thing I almost said was, um, "Well, if they have two adrenal glands that are normal? I guess the question is, would you image the the patient? I don't think there's any indication to do that. Ectopic adrenal rests are pretty common. Um, So I don't think that I would bat an eye about that unless they had other um, manifestations of an adrenal possible source or something unusual going on. It's a good question though.
0: Excellent. Well, that wraps up um, all of our questions. Thank you, everyone, for your participation today. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.